All right. Everybody hear me okay in the back? Great. In the front? All right. Perfect. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about the inspiration of the Bible. Yesterday we talked about, some of us were here, the, um, how we got the Bible. Talked some about canonicity and transmission and stuff like that. If, I, uh, if I'm correct on that. haven't listened to it yet. Um, but today we're going to be talking about the inspiration of the Bible. Tomorrow we've got the Bible in prophecy. Brother David Steersman is going to teach that. Then Thursday, the Bible in science. Chad Tacto is going to teach that. And then Friday, Brian Kenyon is going to be here and teach. Um, does the Bible contain any errors? 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 Does the Bible have any mistakes in it? Um, will be his topic. Tonight, tonight, for inspiration, we're going to talk about trying to prove that, if we can, which I would argue we can, that the Bible is inspired. But that's something people say a lot. You've probably heard it a lot. But people outside of church or the church, I don't know if they really always know what that means. So what does that mean when you hear that, that the Bible is inspired? What do you take that to mean? God breathed? Okay. Perfect. Anything else? Because I know you hear it a lot. Bible's inspired. God's inspired word. Yep. That word inspired, when we say the Bible's inspired, and when we say I was inspired by Mr. Nosenbook's performance in the skit, usually those are different things. And I guess the point I'm really trying to get at is sometimes the way we use that word inspired, most of the time, is different from how we use it when we say the Bible's inspired. What do we mean when we say, I was inspired by a song, or I was inspired by your um, example? What's that? You were moved? Okay, yeah, definitely. That's part of it. I saw what you did, and it kind of influenced me to do something. Okay. Anybody else? When they say, I was inspired. Say that? Motivation. Motivation. Yeah, I was motivated. Um, you inspired me. I wasn't going to do it. I saw what you did. Now I'm going to go do it. Yeah, that's good. Anything else on inspired? Encourage. Yeah, encourage. Okay. Uplift. Uplift. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so I think it's good sometimes when we talk about to folks about the inspiration of the Bible, we really kind of try to define what that means. Because the way most people use that word inspiration is like that. And there is a little bit of a connection. We're going to kind of trace that out. Um, so the word inspiration came from a Latin word. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. I didn't take Latin in school. My wife did. I did not. It came from a Latin word meaning to blow out or to breathe upon. And during the Middle Ages, it came to have this connotation of something being influenced by God, even other than God's word. You could say, uh, man, that uh, meal that was cooked last night was so good, it was inspired. It was as if God somehow divinely uh, was working through the cook. And the way we've kind of gotten that into our language of saying the Bible's inspired is the King James translators, they use that Latin word, which was in the Vulgate, which is in the Latin translation of the New Testament of the Bible, and they kind of transliterated it into the word inspired. And it still means something for us today, uh, but very often, uh, sometimes it doesn't mean the same thing. But back then, that was a perfect word to use. It was used in that setting, something being kind of motivated or brought about by God, something that God was influencing to happen. 
when we get this concept, if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3.16, and instead of looking at how the word's kind of used today and its Latin roots and stuff, we're going to look mainly at the Greek word there for a little bit before we move on. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Somebody read that for us, if you don't mind, loudly. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and is possible for doctrine, for proof, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Thank you. So there we have that concept, that word, all scripture is inspired. By God, and that word translated inspired there in the King James. Some of you guys hit the nail on the head, breathed out by God. That's exactly what that Greek word means. Compound Greek word, it's literally the word for God, theos, and the word for spirit, wind, breath, pneuma, depending on who your Greek teacher was, pneuma. And that's what it means. God breathed, God spirited. Some translations, the ESV, for example, um, says just that. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, etc. And that's the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. And I'm not completely sure this is the case, but Paul, a couple other instances in the New, in the New Testament, scholars are pretty sure he kind of almost invents a word. Not that it's bad. We do that all the time in English. You know, if you've got a word, you can add a suffix or a prefix to it, and that's not a word you can find in the dictionary, but everybody knows what you're talking about. I'm trying to think of an example, but I can't. I'm not that smart. Um, but Paul, what's that? Yeah, irregardless. Yeah, some people say that. That's not a word. You can't find that in the dictionary. But if you say that, everybody knows what you mean. What you mean. Uh, and it may have been the case that Paul did that here, combining that word for God and combining that word for spirit or breath and combining them together to explain the process of uh, how the scriptures got to us, rather just a descriptor of the scriptures. Uh, so what does that mean, though, to claim that all scriptures breathed out by God or inspired by God? We're claiming that the Bible, Paul is, and hopefully we are as well, the Bible is more than just another book. It's more than just, you know, The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. It's more than just Homer's Iliad. Its origin, its foundation is from God. God's the one who's ultimately owed with the content. Uh, it owes its distinctiveness to God himself. He was active in bringing it to us and producing it, unlike any other book, unlike any other document that we have. Um, so that's really what we're saying when we say the Bible is inspired, and we get that idea there from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But it's more than that. We're going to try to go about proving that. Can that be demonstrated? Sometimes, and David's brother, Daniel, he always brought this up, at least every time I talked to him about it, every time when he taught it to me at FSOP, sometimes we as Christians, unfortunately, engage in this kind of circular thinking when we talk about the inspiration of the Bible. And somebody might ask, um, you know, well, how do you know the Bible's true? And we'll say, well, because the Bible's inspired. And somebody said, well, how do you know the Bible's inspired? Say, well, because it says that. Okay, but why do you trust that when it says that it's true? Well, because the Bible's true. Well, how do you know that the Bible's true? Well, because it's inspired. And you see, you can just kind of get in this circle of just making, well, this is what the Bible says, and I believe it, and somebody asks, yeah, I know, okay, but why? You know, can we back that up? 
And we're going to see hopefully today and throughout the rest of the week that we definitely can. But here's the basic argument for saying, I like to think of it as a formula. That word argument sometimes has negative connotations. But the basic argument for saying that the Bible is inspired. And this is from originally uh, Thomas B. Warren. And he said this, if the Bible has characteristics that make it beyond human production, then it is the inspired, authoritative word of God. The Bible does have characteristics beyond human production. Therefore, the Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God. And that form is called modus tollens. I don't, probably, I don't know how many of us have heard of that. Maybe you've heard somebody say, if P, then Q. We understand what that means, right? If I make a claim and I back it up, I can prove that claim as long as it logically follows. And that's exactly what this is. If it's true that the Bible has characteristics that make it beyond human production, then it is true. It logically follows that the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God. Um, so really, when you talk about trying to prove or demonstrate the Bible's inspiration, that it's breathed out by God, what you're trying to do is show that it contains characteristics, it contains things that no human or group of, group of humans could produce on their own, unaided by some kind of higher power, superior intelligence, ETC, God. Um, all right. So how can we demonstrate that the Bible is inspired? By looking at these characteristics. We've got to find those characteristics. It's true that if the Bible contains these characteristics, then it logically follows that it's beyond human production. But we need to demonstrate that those characteristics are there. And that's part of what we're going to be trying to do uh, tonight. So usually this breaks down into two groups, these characteristics. You've got necessary characteristics and sufficient characteristics. And, uh, well, before we get into that, any questions or comments? Okay. Sufficient and necess necessary and sufficient characteristics. Um, some of you have probably heard this before. So we're looking for these characteristics in the Bible that prove it's from, it couldn't be made by man, God has to be involved. So necessary characteristics are characteristics without which the conclusion cannot be true, but they are not characteristics by which the conclusion can solely be proven. In other words, if the Bible is really from God, there are some characteristics it must have, but those characteristics do not in and of themselves prove that the Bible is from God. And then we're going to circle around and try to explain this a little bit better. Some examples of these that we're going to look at is it has the claim to be inspired. That makes sense, right? You've got a book that's from God, that's inspired from God, of God, it would make that claim. Now, does that in and of itself prove that it's inspired? Just because the Bible says it's inspired. Why not? You could. Exactly. No sufficient evidence. Now, it would be necessary if you were God, which we all know you're not. It would be necessary to claim it, though, right? But it's not sufficient. That doesn't prove anything to me. And there's other books that claim to be from God, right? You've got the Quran, you've got the Book of Mormon, and some of their other documents that claim to be inspired. That in and of itself doesn't prove it, but that must be present. Another thing, a necessary characteristic, something the Bible has to have if it's inspired, but doesn't suffice to make the whole case, is accuracy in academic areas, is what that's often called. So when the Bible talks about history, 
And if it's inspired of God, we'd expect it to be accurate, right? If it talks about geography and it's inspired of God, we'd expect it to be accurate. When it talks about those things in the scientific field that are observable, testable, etc., we'd expect it to be accurate if it's inspired of God. Uh, so we're going to see that in the Bible a little bit. That's necessary, but not sufficient. Why? I could write a book that's historically accurate. I mean, it would take a lot of research. I wouldn't want to, because it'd take a lot of time, but it's possible. There are books that are historically accurate. Doesn't mean they're from God. Same with science, same with geography, etc. Another thing it must have, but doesn't prove the case, is cohesive teaching. It can't contradict itself. Now, that doesn't prove it. You could write a document that doesn't contradict itself, but it must be there. It must have cohesion if it's going to be the Word of God. So any book, any uh, book or written document can have these characteristics. They don't prove the inspiration of the Bible, but if the Bible is inspired, it would have to have these. And hopefully those are things we see when we open our Bible and investigate it with an open mind. Any questions about necessary characteristics? I'm going to give a couple analogies once we talk about sufficient characteristics. Sufficient characteristics are characteristics by which the conclusion can be positively established. In other words, these are characteristics that, if found in the Bible, are sufficient to prove that the Bible is inspired. These are things that in and of themselves demonstrate that the Bible has been breathed out, inspired by a transcendent intelligence which can produce things humans cannot. These are kind of these proof positive things. Um, and you're probably familiar with some of these things that prove or demonstrate that the Bible has a supernatural origin. What are some things you can think of? Can you think of any off the top of your head? Okay, yeah, so we've got messianic prophecy. These prophecies that occur at least 400 years before Jesus, a bunch of them, right? And they're just fulfilled to the T in Jesus Christ. So how could somebody who was just a mere man writing a document foresee all of that? You know, maybe one or two things, okay, maybe. Maybe just coincidentally. But when you get in the realms of hundreds of things fulfilled specifically, that's, that's, in another, that's another ballpark. So you've got messianic prophecy. What else? Can anybody think of anything? Sets the Bible wholly apart. Right. Right, that's often called, right, scientific foreknowledge is what that's usually called, yeah. So things that the people at the time when the Bible was being written, things that weren't discovered yet, things they shouldn't have known, wouldn't have known, but we see them in the Bible, shows that there's a superior intelligence behind it. What else? Can anybody think of anything else? Mm -hmm. So maybe boil that down, maybe there's this higher level of teaching that man can't know, that man can't teach. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Miracles that are in it, right. Yeah, that's part of it. And getting back to prophecy, we only kind of talked about one type of prophecy, messianic, but there's other kinds of prophecy, right? There's prophecy about kingdoms rising and falling. There's prophecy about people by name 
who are going to become rulers and do certain things. All of that's in there. Hundreds of years before the fact, things like this are impossible for the man to produce, for man to produce. Uh, so those are sufficient characteristics. And when you combine those with the necessary things, so not only does it have these proof positive things, prophecy makes no mistakes, things like that, but it also has, well, it claims to be inspired. Well, it's accurate when it speaks on these different things, um, et cetera. Yes? Tells us where we came from. Right. Where we can be, end up. Right. And how we should live in this time we have between us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes, sir? It tells us what our purpose is. That's true. That's true. It tells us what our purpose is. We're going to say something. There's this kind of existential significance to it yeah. that strikes deeper than yeah. like a self-help book or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Right, right. So there's this degree of unity. Yeah, there's this degree of unity where, and we're going to look at some of these things more specifically, but you guys really knocked that section out of the park. Any... Um, Confusion at all about the difference between necessary and sufficient characteristics? That, I know, sometimes can be tricky. I always think about it, and this isn't a perfect analogy, but I always think about it from the aspect of trying to, maybe, trying to find a missing person. You know, say if I went missing and you were looking for me, there's some things that if you thought you found me, the person would have to have. Right? They'd have to be six foot two-ish. They'd have to be 200 something pounds, right? They'd have to have dark brown hair. They'd have to look like me, but there's people who look like me, right? That, like, you can't just go out and find somebody who's six foot two and say, look, I found Forrest. Well, how do you know? Because that isn't a sufficient characteristic to prove that it's me. But if I could demonstrate my social security card and I could show you my driver's license, and you did a DNA test and it matched up. With, I mean, those are things you can't, you know, you can't fake. Um, so I think that kind of helps with the difference between sufficient and necessary. Uh, necessary, kind of more general. Sufficient, prove it. You know, I mean, it's there. Um, another example is kind of like a bridge. There's some things bridges have to have in order to be a bridge. Right? A, br a bridge goes across maybe a valley or a river and it connects two pieces of land and it has to have support, and it has to have uh, a way to cross it. But all those things don't mean that when you try to drove over it, it won't fall. Right? All those things don't make it sufficient to bear weight. There's things, if I was an engineer, I could explain are sufficient to make a bridge bear weight, but those two things aren't the same. Right? Um, that's one, may, may, maybe I just muddied the waters even more, I don't know. Um, so necessary and sufficient characteristics. Back to, remember our original formula from Thomas B. Warren. If the Bible has characteristics that make it beyond human production, then it is the inspired, authoritative word of God. So now we're going to find these characteristics, both necessary and sufficient. Uh, so starting with the necessary, we've talked about them, but now we're going to locate them. So the first one we're going to look at is claims of inspiration. We would expect 
a, a book inspired by God to claim to be inspired by God. And hopefully the Bible says it is and it does. But that doesn't prove it, right? The Quran, the Book of Mormon, etc. But these things ought to be present. And there's a couple of different passages we'll look at specifically and then some just kind of generically. But look at Exodus 20, beginning of verse 1. If you would turn there in your Bibles. Exodus 20, verse 1. And if you're familiar with this context, this is Moses is about to deliver the Ten Commandments from God. But notice what it says. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, not Moses, God. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, etc. You got the Ten Commandments. And there's just an example of many throughout the Pentateuch, throughout the first five books of the Bible, where it says these are God's words. And then you've got, uh, as you go through, you've got all of the prophets. All of them say this is the word of the Lord. They're not saying this is, you know, Isaiah didn't stand up and say, my opinion is that we should repent. He said, no, hear the word of the Lord. And then he would say something. Or he'd say something, and then he'd say, thus says the Lord. That's one of the most repeated phrases in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. Because uh, you've got it again and again, this claim that it's coming from God. Isaiah 1.10, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Jeremiah 1, 1-4, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Ezekiel 1, 1-3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Hosea 1, 1, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. I think you get the, uh, the, the point there. And then a couple of things in the New Testament. We already read 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. And then you've got 2 Peter 1, 19-21, if you turn there in your Bibles. 2 Peter 1, 19-21. Peter 1, 19-21. Peter just got done talking about how he and the apostles witnessed Jesus' transfiguration on the mount. And he says there in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, that um, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So these things that were prophesied about Jesus, we've got them fully confirmed now that Jesus has come. Notice what he says in verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And there's some, there, some people misunderstand that as when I read the Bible, I shouldn't be doing any interpreting. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this isn't from the influence or the impact of people. This isn't people. Uh, they, prophets weren't giving their version of what God said. They're giving what God said. And then he clarifies, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you kind of see some of that, what the Holy Spirit's involved in there, some of that agency, Peter says, carrying along, moving along these individuals to write these things down. Now, what exactly that process looked like, we're not completely sure. A couple of things I think we can exclude. One of them, often called mechanical dictation. Some people view inspiration, and um, if you do this way, I'm not trying to offend you, I definitely used to think this as well, and kind of like the Holy Spirit just overcomes the person writing the scripture, and they're just, they're like an automatron, they're just a robot, and they're not, you know, it's just the Holy Spirit's moving their hand. 
and they're not even thinking or anything. But the problem with that is, you know, we've got different books in the Bible with different styles, people including personal material, um, things like that. It's not saying it was all man, but I think the way Peter explains it here, though it's kind of vague, helps us. Men spoke as they were carried along or moved along by the Holy Spirit. So it's not necessarily an override, and they're forced to do this, uh, but it's the Holy Spirit um, overseeing that, giving them the very words. Um, and once again, I don't, like, again, I don't know exactly what that was like. I would like to know from the perspective of the inspired writer if he heard it audibly or if it, you know, I don't know. Um, whatever it is, that's what it says. Holy Spirit moved these men along, carried them along. So, uh, and then you've got a couple of different claims from the book of Paul. I mean, from Paul's writings, the book of Paul. Um, that'd be easier, right? Just combine them all into the book of Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, if you look at that. I think this is important because sometimes there's this debate, and I don't want us to get too far into this because it's kind of a tangent, but sometimes there's this debate, you know, were the words inspired or just kind of the general idea? Kind of just, you know, the paraphrase. You could paraphrase it, same thing. Maybe the Holy Spirit's paraphrasing something, and then the writer interprets and spits it out. Um, but it seems the very words are coming from God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. That's not right. 1 Corinthians 2, 13. Paul says there of him and him and his uh, apostles, we, him and his fellow apostles, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Pardon me. So he says there he's imparting words taught by the Spirit. So there seems to be this direct line of communication between the Holy Spirit and the apostles, and it's the very words. Uh, the words. And then also there's this discussion of, is it really the whole Bible that's inspired by God. Maybe it's just a section. Maybe it's just, you know, the part that I think, some people will say, you, sometimes you hear that phrase, red letter Christian. Some people will say, you know, the words of Jesus themselves are like more inspired than the rest of it. So Jesus never talked about women preaching, and that's the more inspired section. So why should we really make a distinction about that? Or some people will say, you know, Jesus never really said anything about homosexuality, and that's the more inspired section. So there's really no point in trying to draw any lines over that. Um, but that's not how the Bible presents itself. Even Jesus would say that his apostles, after he's gone, are going to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're going to be moved along, carried along by the Holy Spirit, and they're going to be given the very words from the Holy Spirit. Look at John 14, 25 through 26 in your Bibles, John 14, 25 through 26. And there Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He's talking to you, his apostles here. They notice... Chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. Just the next page over. Jesus says there, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, 
he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. And then notice just the same page, chapter 16, verses 12 through 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So you see there, the apostles are to be guided into all truth. Um, so what they taught was accurate. What they taught was, was uh, true. That doesn't mean they were infallible. We saw Peter sin. Some people argue that Paul may have sinned when he made that vow at the end of the book of Acts and he had to shave his head and go to Jerusalem. Um, so they weren't infallible, but when they taught doctrine, remember uh, what Jesus said to Peter, these things will have already been loosed in heaven. Whatever you loose, whatever you bind will have already been loosed in heaven. So there's that communication between God and the apostles. Likewise, uh, Paul declared that Jesus' words were on the same authoritative level as the law of Moses. Look at um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, if you would. First Timothy five eighteen. That's not right. Hmm. If somebody knows what I'm looking for and knows where it is, you can help me. Paul puts Jesus' words on the same level as the law of Moses. Somewhere in first or second Timothy. 18, I am right? 1 Timothy 5.18? I was looking at 6.18. I'm sorry. 5.18. Okay, there we go. Uh, yeah, 5.18. If you would read that for us, David, if you can read that for us. Thank you. So that first quote there is from, like you said, Deuteronomy 25.4. You should not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And that second quote, the laborer deserves his wages, is from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Notice what Paul says. He says, the scriptures say. So already when Paul is writing, Jesus' words are counted as God-given, as authoritative, as the law of Moses. Likewise, we see Peter refer to Paul's writings as scripture. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. And this is at the very close of Peter's uh, second epistle here. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. He just got done talking about you know, God's not slack in his promise. Jesus will return, but he's waiting for people to repent. He's patient. Long suffering, he says, Count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters, there he speaks in them of these matters. Notice this there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and, untwi and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter says, uh, Paul's writings are in that same group as scriptures with the rest of them. Um, so when you look at it all, from Old Testament to New Testament, 
there's this claim, overarching claim, that this is from God, that this is inspired of God, breathed out by God, given to these holy men who taught these things, wrote them down, etc. And then we learned last night, at least those of us who were here, about how that original writing got to us today. So we can be confident, and we might not understand the exact nitty-gritty how of that inspiration process happened, um, but nonetheless, we can be confident that every word of this whole thing uh, is inspired as it's uh, correctly translated, passed down, etc. So that's the first necessary claim. The, the next ones, I think, will come a little quicker. Um, so we talked about the Bible claims to be inspired. If it is inspired, that has to be there, but that doesn't prove it. And then you've got, in and of itself, and then you've got accuracy in these different fields, uh, history, geography, etc. And it's been said a million times, it'll probably be said a million more times, and the Bible isn't a textbook. What people mean by that, it's not that you can't learn from it or anything like that, but God didn't design the Bible to be like a geography resource in and of itself, you know. If I want to see how to get to um, Ocala, I'm not going to open the Bible and see the top topography of Central Florida. You know, that's not why it's there. It's got a bigger overarching purpose. But when it speaks on these things, like geography, like historical events, if it's from God, you'd expect it to be accurate. And I think that this is better settled in a kind of case-by-case -case fashion. You know, when you see the Bible make a claim about an event that happened, I think you can trust it. Um, but if you're trying to prove this, it's better to go through kind of case by case, but there are a few notable examples um, of the Bible's accuracy. So for example, Genesis is considered one of the most um, accurate documents from that time period that we have talking about history. Um, especially um, a lot of scholars, at least after the whole Tower of Babel incident, they're kind of afraid for political reasons, to talk about things before then with the flood, et cetera. But after that, uh, even secular historians, for the most part, admit that uh, Genesis's accuracy is uncanny for the time period. Um, there's a famous example of Sir William Ramsey. You've probably heard of this guy before. Um, and he kind of was a skeptic archaeologist back in the 20s, I want to say, is when he set out to try to disprove the Book of Acts. And the Book of Acts mentioned so many specific things that he thought it should be pretty easy to do. But as he started going and digging in Asia Minor, he found out that the book of Acts is just uh, ridiculously accurate, and he ended up becoming a believer. Wayne Jackson had this to say about the book of Acts. He says, in Acts, Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, nine Mediterranean islands. He also mentions 95 persons, 62 of which are not named elsewhere in the New Testament. And his references, where checkable, are always correct. This is truly remarkable in view of the fact that the political slash territorial situation of his day was in a state of almost constant change. So we've got Luke in this volatile time period, in this place, uh, in the Mediterranean basin, in the Roman Empire that's always kind of shifting and changing. And he's able to, with astounding accuracy, name all these places. Now, that in and of itself doesn't necessarily prove the Bible's inspired. But again, if the Bible's from God, You'd expect these things to be accurate. There's a lot of other examples of archaeological finds kind of confirming what's already said in the Bible. Now, I don't think we as Christians have to wait for an archaeologist to find something before we believe what the Bible says about it. You know, we don't have to say, well, I'm still waiting for the archaeological evidence about Jehoshaphat. I think I'm going to wait off on believing that. 
until somebody digs it up. Um, no, that's not what we're saying. But at the same time, you get all these times where it's confirmed. Um, and we don't have time to go through all of these, but you've got the Cyrus Cylinder, uh, which mentions the same Cyrus by name, which is mentioned in the Bible hundreds of years before the fact, and kind of some of his escapades. You've got a couple of steles, which are like these monuments with words inscribed on them that'll describe some things that are written about in the Bible. For example, you've got a stele um, in Egypt that mentions the Jews being there and kind of camping out like we read about um, at the end of the book of Genesis. You've got all these stones, the Moabite stone. You've got these reliefs in Lachish that describe things in the Bible. You've got the Pilate inscription, which you've probably heard of before maybe, uh, but some archaeologists dug this up and it mentions Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, or the area where uh, it says he was ruling in the Bible. You've got an interesting kind of newer one, and there's still there's some recent articles about it. You should look it up if you get the chance, called the Nazareth Decree. Um, has anybody ever heard of that? The Nazareth Decree? David? Yeah. And it's essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, it's essentially a uh, document, an official document in Rome that essentially was saying, hey, you absolutely cannot pretty much rob a grave. Once a tomb's sealed, make sure you don't go in and get that body. And some people are saying it's because of kind of the aftermath of the resurrection of Jesus. And Rome's response was, hey, make sure bodies stay in tombs. Pretty interesting. Um, then you've got the Gallio inscription, which kind of confirms some of the timeline in Acts and 1 Corinthians. And the list goes on. I've got a bigger one. If you want to see it, I can give it to you, and you can look those things up yourself. But really the bottom line is, what I'm trying to get to, what this all boils down to, is that wherever it is possible to fact check or to falsify the Bible's claims in these areas, the Bible passes the test. And though that in and of itself is not proof positive for inspiration, that's what you'd expect to happen if this is something delivered to us from God. Um, then you've got this fact of it does not contradict itself. If it's from God, you'd expect it not to contradict itself. And again, I think this is better in a case-by-case -case basis. Lots of books and literature out there about supposed or alleged Bible contradictions. Um, in my experience, most Bible contradictions are resolved by a number of things. The first one is examining the context. A lot of, and I mean, like, just the verses above it or below it. Because sometimes people will see these contradictions, but when you read it, kind of zooming out, you see that it's not what they thought it was, or it's clarified in the context whatever may be the case. Next, sometimes examining the original languages. Uh, sometimes there's uh, a way a word is translated that some people take the wrong way and think it's a contradiction. Uh, for example, you've got examples where, you know, in the Ten Commandments, Jesus, not Jesus, uh, the Lord says, thou shalt not kill. And then in other places, you've got God commanding Israel to kill people. And some people say, well, look, that is definitely a contradiction. But when you see that, that's really better translated, that shall not murder. And that distinction between killing and murder as an example of that. Also examining the historical background uh, and cultural things. And also keeping the genre in mind. Some people will take, you know, whether it's hyper, hyper, hyperboles and poetry sections or imagery and say, look, this is ridiculous. This is a contradiction. But it's not. They're speaking in. Um, a figure of speech. 
to give an example about the context, there's a really popular, there's actually a skeptic's version of the Bible where all the supposed contradictions are highlighted. And one of the big ones uh, that's often given is in Matthew 24, verse, um, let's see here, Matthew 24, verse 34. Matthew 24, 34, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And if you read the context, I mean, even the religious world is kind of divided over what Jesus is talking about. But skeptics will say, before that verse, Jesus is talking about the end of the world, like the end of time, the final coming, everything. And if that's the case, and Jesus says, before this generation, all this thing will take place, then you've got something that's false, um, that's not true, and the Bible's debunked. But if you look at the context, and it's a tough study, but it seems um, that Jesus isn't talking about the end of the world, he's talking about is the judgment on Jerusalem, which definitely did take place within that generation Jesus uh, was talking to. Um, and then you've got this incredible literary value. I think that's another example of a necessary characteristic. Um, maybe word it like this, if God wrote a book You'd expect it to be good reading, I guess. You know, you wouldn't expect it to be kind of just a jumbled mess, like an essay from like a fifth grader. You'd expect it to be to stand on its own and to be able to dig into it. Uh, Lori, even, at Columbia University, one of her classes, they studied the Bible. Obviously, not from the same perspective she would in church, uh, but they were looking at it as a great piece of literature. So I think that that's interesting. All right, 15 minutes left. Some sufficient characteristics found in the Bible. Remember, these are things that in and of themselves demonstrate, in and of themselves prove. These are proof positive things. I don't want to step on the toes of David or Chad, so I'm not going to get super specific, but just some things to keep in mind. First subset of sufficient characteristics, you've got these Old Testament historical prophecies. Things that these men, these prophets, said were going to happen. Many times, hundreds of years before they happened, and then we see in history they happen to the detail of what was prescribed ahead of time. For example, a lot of these things I know David's going to go over. You've got Isaiah predicting the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persians at least 150 years before it happened. You've even got him naming the Persian king by name centuries before he was born. Cyrus, of course. And that's in Isaiah 13, Isaiah 44, and Isaiah 45. And then you've got, for example, in the book of Ezekiel, who prophesied about many nations destroying Tyre, something which happened a few hundred years afterwards. And it's really spectacular detail. I know David's going to go over this one, pretty sure. So I'm not going to get too far into it, but um, Ezekiel even mentions kind of the method with which they'll take the city. And there was a city and then another city, and they built the causeway and all this stuff. And uh, Ezekiel talks about it way before, way before uh, this happens. I hope we can see how this is sufficient. This is something men can't do. And there's a lot of radically skeptical reasons to reject this, that people reject this. But I think with an open mind, you see that this is incredible and has to be the product um, of God. I remember before I was a Christian, I was in a conversation with Lori about why she believed the Bible was true. And she mentioned this to me, this predictive prophecy. And I, um, my rebuttal was, have you ever heard of Nostradamus? You guys ever heard of Nostradamus? Some of us. Supposed future teller. It was a big deal on the History Channel in the late 2010s. So 
Wait, that's now. Earlier, nine years ago, <laughs> eight years ago. But I remember seeing all these shows about Nostradamus on the History Channel. They're like, Nostradamus was able to foresee Hitler's takeover of Europe hundreds of years before it happened. All this stuff. But when you look at what Nostradamus said, it was extremely vague. It's nothing like what you read about in the prophecies of the Bible. I mean, he even, I mean, these people who say Nostradamus predicted the future go to great lengths to make it seem that way. And it's unlike the Bible. You've got these specific details. And really the only way to get around that is this kind of radical skepticism that says, well, you know, we don't really know when that was written, even though best scholars say it was written before this date. What if there's two versions of that? What if, I mean, there's all these excuses, but really when you come down to it, it's proof that there's a superior intelligence behind the writing. Then you've got the Messianic prophecies, which were already discussed. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies meticulously fulfilled in Jesus, most of the time, at least 400 years after the fact. And really, just significant details like the manner of his conception, right? Isaiah 7.14, the place of his birth, Micah 5.2, um, the details, manner, and significance of his death, Isaiah 53, which is uncanny and almost... Uh, eerily accurate to all these details. And of course, you've got Psalm 22, which again, accurately describes the death of Jesus. And you also have just little obscure things like Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Right? Even that was foreseen hundreds of years before the fact. Um, all these things tied into Jesus' life. You also even have some prophecies in the New Testament. I think really uh, the only one worth looking at, at least from my perspective, is Jesus predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. And he said within a generation, this is going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. He gave all these signs so that Christians could escape. Um, and according to some historical documents, the loss of Christian life in the siege of Jerusalem was low. And they say that's probably because they knew the signs Jesus talked about and they got out of the way. Another thing that I think is sufficient is the remarkable unity in doctrine and teaching despite how complex it is. You know, there's things in the Bible that you could study and study and study and study and study and still learn. Like you were saying, it's living and active. And there's passages of the Bible you could read every day and get something new out of it. But at the same time, it's all cohesive. I think it's amazing when you break it down by numbers, you get the Bible written over a 1,500 year span by 40 different writers, three different continents, three different languages, 14 literary genres or styles, and yet it's harmonious from Genesis to Revelation. And that's something that I think mere man cannot do, especially the complexity and everything you see. Uh, Thomas B. Warren broke it down, broke down its unity in three different ways. It has a unified theme, Messiah, Jesus coming into the world, the problem of sin, how we got here, how Jesus is gonna help. You've got purpose, unification and purpose, the Bible is there to glorify God, to give instructions to man about himself, about salvation, etc. And you've got unity in doctrine. Thomas Warren would say, whatever the Bible teaches, it teaches consistently. That's why you've got all these cross-references. You know, you don't have, Matthew says one thing about, about Jesus' death, and Luke says another, then Mark says another. Uh, that's just not how it is. Also, something is a sufficient characteristic is... Uh, I think you could put in the high ethical standard that's taught in the Bible. I think you see, especially in the New Testament, Old Testament as well, but the New Testament comes to my mind, 
things that mere men would not invent and write and teach and then try to live out. You know, like when Jesus says, love your enemy. Um, and it seems simple, but when you really think about what that is, especially in his context, in the Roman Empire, to love your enemy, that's ridiculous. And for a man to just invent that and to try to go with that, getting nothing out of it, um, doesn't make any sense. And then you've got, for example, Paul's teaching about a couple of different institutions. Paul's, Paul's teaching about slavery, for one, was pretty radical for the Roman Empire. I mean, if you own a slave, you own a slave in the Roman Empire. That's your property, and uh, even the paterfamilias, the head of the household in Rome, had a lot of rights. He could get away with a lot of stuff. And Paul says, if you own a slave, keep in mind that you have a master too, and you're supposed to treat him. Uh, he told, for example, uh, Philemon to treat a slave uh, better than a brother. So you've got things that I think mere man wouldn't invent. You've got Paul, Galatians 3.28, He's writing in a society that is extremely divided by class, by what your job is, by what gender you are. And he says, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all valued. You all have equal shot at salvation through Jesus. These are things that I would argue a mere man of his time, like Paul, Jesus, etc., living in that context, they wouldn't have said unless there's some truth and uh, higher being behind it. So overall... I think we can all say that it is the case that the Bible has characteristics that make it beyond human production, that it is inspired, that it is the authoritative word of God. The Bible makes this claim, and then it backs it up. It shows it as they say, um, well, I don't say this a whole lot, but I know what it means. You know, the proof is in the pudding. I think you see that when you open up the pages of the Bible. Um, all right. Any questions, any comments, anything at all? Yes, ma'am. Right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, a good. That's a good question. Um, she was saying, when it says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired by God, that word scripture, is that, I mean, is that Genesis from Revelation? Is that the Old Testament? Is that the whole Bible? What is that? Um, and that's, that word scripture is used again and again. I think the Greek word behind it is graphe. It just means like writings. But it, the way it's used is, it's almost, you know, like a capital S is on it. Like it's used again and again to refer to this collection of, um, these sacred texts. And in the context, a lot of people make the argument that Paul is talking about the Old Testament because he's talking to Timothy. And he says, the scriptures make you wise unto salvation. Timothy only had the Old Testament. That's what he grew up with, the Old Testament. And then what little from the New Testament he had. But I think that all scripture, and then we see Peter puts Paul on the mark with the rest of the scriptures. Paul says Jesus is on mark with the Old Testament. I think once you see that all together, plus Paul's claims to be inspired I think that includes everything. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Right. Right. She was saying, uh, you know, like the Mormons, would they point to that and say, well, this is scripture, like the Book of Mormon? 
Yeah, definitely. In other words, there are some writings that aren't inspired by God. Mm -hmm. Is profitable, yeah, definitely. Um, and Again, they're using the word scripture like we would use it in the 21st century. When we think right. scriptures, we think of, yeah, from a Christian standpoint, we think of the Bible. Right. I, I don't know if Bruce went over this, but there's kind of these markers of canonicity that are, I think, self-evident that things like the Book of Mormon fail. Because you have to explain why God didn't reveal that until the 1800s and why. Because you know, one of the markers of canonization is apostolicity. It's either written by an apostle, signed off by an apostle, approved by the apostles, you know what I mean? Um, the Book of Mormon would fail that test, definitely. I think the rubber, I mean, the rubber hits the, this isn't just an academic thing either. I mean, this really is life-changing, you know. Sure. We don't have to wonder what our purpose is. We don't have to worry about, you know, um, where we're going to go after we, I mean, all that stuff's revealed to us and we can have hope in it and be sure of it and have this authority in what we do and back it up and know that we're living lives pleasing to God, which really is life-changing. And it's something that a lot of people don't have and they struggle with. And uh, we've got it with us right here. And it's something we can share and hopefully get other people to be pleasing to God as well. All right, if there's nothing else, no more questions or comments. We really just did, I mean, this was just the tip of the iceberg. Hope you'll be back next couple of nights to kind of flesh this out a little bit more and see these things specifically. Hopefully it'll be uh, an encouraging experience. But I think the kids are probably waiting for us in the hallway, so thank you.